you've got a Bible, open to Genesis chapter 2. Um, in my Bible, it's page 2. Uh, so I'm not sure where, how that works in your Bible. Um, but we're continuing in week three of our series called Rooted, where we're just talking about um, kind of anchoring down into the meaning of life and all the different um, functional, everyday uh, areas of, of, of where we live life. And so we're thinking about the way Jesus, his kingdom, uh, meets us in things like uh, discipleship, in church, in marriage, in singleness, in parenting, in work, in uh, all kinds of other different areas. And so today, uh, we're taking up the topic of marriage is what we're going to be talking about today. So uh, over the next several weeks, we'll be addressing uh, all, all other kind of different topics and stages of life. But today, um, we are talking about marriage. And so I want to just say this from the start today. Uh, preparing the sermon this week um, has been really difficult, not because uh, it's like I don't know what marriage is or I don't know what, what to say, but because we're all over the map. And we'll talk about that in just a second when we come into this topic in this room. I recognize that and I feel the frailty of my own ability in this sermon to possibly meet all the kinds of ways that you're experiencing uh, things around uh, the issue of, of marriage. And so I don't come to you today uh, as a marriage expert. I think that idea is completely ridiculous. No one's an expert on marriage. Um, I come to you today as a fellow learner, and I come to you today as someone who's trying to drive us to the authority of what God's Word has to say uh, on this topic. Is that good? Does that work with you guys? Hey, a couple of resources I want to throw out before we jump in today that have helped me in preparation for this uh, and just have helped me in general in my marriage. Um, this first book is uh, by Timothy Keller. It's called The Meaning of Marriage. Uh, Timothy and Kathleen Keller wrote this. Uh, I think he is like the ultimate Jedi of all things when it comes to gospel-centeredness in Jesus and life. And so... Uh, the Meaning of Marriage, Timothy Keller. The second book is called uh, What Did You Expect by Paul David Tripp. He's an amazing counselor. Uh, he counsels across a range of issues, but he's got some especially good thoughts on marriage. The book is called What Did You Expect? It's been tremendously helpful of thinking about core confessions and core convictions uh, as you work out life in marriage. And so you guys can receive those. And uh, Justin, if you grab those books, that'd be awesome. Um, but I want to jump into Genesis chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 15 through uh, 25. I'll read these verses, I'll pray, and then we'll jump in from there. Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. Jesus, our King, speaks to us like this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and of the birds of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and all the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up with it in its place with flesh. And the rib that God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. 
This is God's perfect word to us. Let's pray together. Jesus, we, uh, we come before your word today just confessing together we need a lot of help. Um, we need, from the very beginning, um, no pretense, Jesus, we need a lot of help. And so, Holy Spirit, would you um, spike up our minds? Would you draw out our attention? And for the variety of places that we come to around this, this topic and this subject, Jesus, I pray that you would accomplish every purpose needed in the variety of circumstances we walk in. Um, God, you are good, and you are way more committed to marriage than we will ever be. And so it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, it's amazing what a uh, simple search on Amazon can do to help you kind of learn where we are in our cultural moment. It's not that maybe a simple search on Amazon teaches you anything you don't already know. It just kind of confirms, oh, it's, it's like that. So uh, this week in preparation, I thought, I'm going to see just how many resources there are out there on marriage. And so I just simple uh, Google search bar, just typed in marriage search, over 60,000 books on marriage. And this isn't like books written across time and the classics, you know, like Amazon's giving you the popular, popular level hits, right? So this is stuff typically within the last five years or so that over 60,000 books, more than that on the issue of sex, 50,000 books on dating, 40,000 books on divorce. It's a lot of books. <laughs> And, and here's what's crazy. That's just books. So beyond that, I, I started also kind of researching podcasts and how many podcasts are there on those topics. And it's a little bit difficult to kind of find numbers on that, but it's endless mounds and mounds of podcasts on these same subjects, not to mention the popular level articles that float around in the, in the so com, common media sources, things like Facebook, which is super trustworthy and reliable, uh, things like blogs and op-eds and other popular media sources. Literally, what I was exp uh, discovering is the amount of content on these topics is inconsumable. Like if you'd endeavor to go, I'm going to read everything out there, Christian or non-Christian on this topic, between now and when I die, you couldn't do it. Like you, it's inconsumable. And so here's what I know from all of this. It's nothing profound, but you and I are absolutely starving for deep and meaningful relationships. And we're terrible at it, right? We're starving. Someone tell me how to do it. I'm awkward. They're awkward. We're awkward. How do we do this? Right? Awkwardness abounds. We're terrible at it. We're starving for it. And, and, and here's what I find to be true in my own life, and I think I'm just a sample of regular humanity. Oftentimes what we do is we find ourselves waffling between idealizing the version of life or the version of relationships out there that we want, and on the other side, we're discontent with what we actually have. So we keep grasping for some other reality and other relationships out there, wherever they are, despite the fact that we have current ones we're not thankful for and we're discontent with. And so I know when we talk about the issue of marriage, we're, we're all over the map in this room. Like, there's probably very few people that are in the same place when it comes to this. That doesn't mean that your place is any sort of element of freakishness. It just means that we're all over the map. We're all in different circumstances in this. Some are single and flourishing and content, and they're living life to the full in their singleness. Awesome, right? Others are single and jaded and wrecked from a background of divorce and family and have no idea what, what life forward looks like with relationships in this way. Some are married, and your marriage is flourishing, and you would say at the beginning of 2019, it's never been better, 
Like you're there and you're celebrating. You're like, all right, a sermon on marriage. This is great. Just add to our awesomeness, right? There's other in this room and you're married and you're disappointed and you're disillusioned. And you're going, I have no idea what the person is thinking when they say it's never been better because I tend to wake up and I say, is this it? And you feel disillusioned and busted and broken and you're not sure you want it anymore. There's others of you that you're coming in the room and you're on the brink, you're the tipping point to going, I'm not sure how much longer I can hold on. I'm not even sure if I should hold on, right? I know there's others in this room that you feel like life is over. You're suffering the sorrow of loss and divorce. There's others in this room that have experienced around the issue of marriage, betrayal, lost trust. There's fear, there's depression. There's some that maybe you're recently divorced and you're grappling with shame and you're, hey, listen, I want to just tell you that there's no shame in where you are. Uh, we, we, we're all in this together. And maybe today you're thinking, this is the last thing I wanted to talk about. This feels like a sermon on money, right? Hey, hey listen, we're here together. We're, we're, we're here in this together. I know that we're all over the place and in our present culture, we're starving for someone to give us a voice and a direction forward. We're starving for it. Me too, right? And that's actually my hope today. So here's what I want to do from Genesis chapter 2. I want to first show that God has designed us for companionship. Something that's common, probably knowledge in the room, but I want to throw it on the table and just explore it for a second. God's designed us for companionship. And the second thing is give us a biblical definition of marriage a biblical definition of marriage. So look back at verse 15, and we'll talk about the way God has hardwired us for companionship. Scripture says this, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you shall surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In verse 18, then the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. There's some clarity that we need to kind of speak to right off the top around this verse. If you've been in, script, if you've been in church any length of time, you've probably heard this scripture and you're familiar with it, especially uh, those ladies in the room understanding, okay, God has made me as a helper fit for him in the context of marriage, right? Adam and Eve that way. So maybe you're familiar with it, but there's also, there's also in our present culture a lot of baggage around this language, as though God has simply created woman uh, as, as like a little buddy, a helper or something like this, a, a suppressive kind of language, suppressive ideas come forward that, um, that, some, that somehow men are given a greater kind of life and women are given a lesser kind of life by, by mention of this kind of language. But, but here's what I want to say. In no way, in no way is God saying that man has been given a greater kind of life a greater task in life, a greater mission in life. And now what's happening in Genesis 2.18 is that God's got to figure out, well, who's going to make sure man and all of his tasks and great life has his meals cooked? Who's going to worry about making sure his house is put together and his clothes are washed? I've got to find a helper for him, uh, someone who's going to be a little servant. That's not the language that God is using. That's not the context we should understand helper. That's not what's meant. The word helper here, to give clarity, is the same word used throughout the Old Testament applied to God himself. Over 90 times in the Old Testament, this same word is used to describe who God is and how he operates in his character. 
What's meant by helper is someone who comes alongside to supply strength, to supply wisdom, and to fill up what's lacking. You hear that? That's beautiful. To someone that comes alongside to, to supply strength, to supply wisdom, courage, bravery, intelligence, to fill up what's lacking. That's what's meant by helper. It's not good for man to be alone, but he needs a helper fit for him, someone that can supply what's lacking. There's nothing here about greater or lesser roles between man and woman. These are not ideas that come forward from God's design. Now, here's what we got to mention in this text, right? So up to this point, if you read from Genesis 1-1 all the way to 2-17, everything that God has created has been good to very good, right? All of creation, the waters, the expanse, the sky, the dry land, the creatures, the birds, the fish, all the things, very good. It is good. This is the first time we get a not good in the creation narrative, verse 18. And it's not good that man should be alone. And so what God does, what God does is he, is he draws, the, draws Adam into a deep sleep. I'm not sure what those sleeping pills looked like, but I bet it was awesome. He falls asleep, God takes from his side and he wakes up and there's Eve, there's woman, right? And the first time he lays eyes on her, if we were to read this in the Hebrew, what he says comes out in a song, he sings. He sees Eve and he sings at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, you shall be called woman. Translation, you are like me. And at the same time, you are oh so not like me. And it's good. And it's really good. And there are all kinds of things that we could pull from this and see from this. But here's one of just the simple yet profound things we need to see from Genesis 2. From the very beginning, God has hardwired us for deep and meaningful relationships, and it's not good that we're alone. This is, we feel this. This is not just the Bible saying this. This is the Bible saying this, but our own testimony of life testifies to this, right? That this is the despair of loneliness. We know it's not good to be alone. We, we crave meaningful and deep relationships all around us, but this is where it gets complicated, right? Because relationships are complicated. It's an official status on Facebook, right? You can identify with another person and just say, it's complicated. It is, and here's why. Because yes, Genesis 2, it's not good that man should be alone. We now supply a helper fit for him. Genesis 2 quickly rolls into Genesis 3, where sin and rebellion against God is introduced and fracture comes into the human experience, right? Fracture in a relationship with God, fracture in a relationship with each other. A marriage goes wrong very, very quickly in just a chapter's time. It doesn't take any time at all. And so the fracture comes forward in relationships. And it's not as though our desire for relationships goes away because sin enters. They don't. We all desire relationships and we're all sinful. It's not that our desire goes away. It's not that our, our longings go away. What happens though is that all of a sudden now there's distortion. All of a sudden now there's disruption, and all of a sudden now there's ulterior motives in these desires. Because of our sin and brokenness, here's what's true. The, the greatest common collective fear in this room is the fear of rejection. Because of the fracture that came into the world through sin and rebellion and the way we relate to one another, the greatest collective fear in this room is the fear of rejection. 
Every one of us have it from varying degrees and from time to time, but it's the fear that someone's gonna find out about me. Find out about thoughts, find out about hidden actions, find out about things that are going on in my mind, in my heart, about my character, in my life. They're gonna find out and based on that knowledge of me, I'm gonna be tossed to the side. It's a fear of rejection. This is the result of the fracture that we feel. So here's the consequence of that. In our relationships, now culture presses on us the pressure to project yourself as strong and put together and desirable and smart and witty and people like me, doggone it, I'm good enough and I'm smart enough so as not to be rejected. So I've got to project a certain version of myself. This is where we get the instinct to walk around and say things like, how you doing? I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm great. I'm not nervous. Why would you think I'm nervous? Is there something about me that you think I'm nervous? I'm not nervous. I'm not worried about anything in life. I understand life. I know where I'm going. I'm not afraid of anything. I'm chill. I'm so chill. I'm super chill right now. I'm not afraid of failing. I'm not afraid of rejection. I'm not afraid of anything, right? And so what we do is we Instagram our lives and we filter our lives and we tell everyone around us that we're acceptable and that we're desirable, we're put together, we're happy, there's no worries. We're mostly at peace with God and ourselves. We're just fine. This is what we tell the world, right? Look at this meal I'm eating. It's amazing. Look at it in my picture, my feed, my meal. I should say I'm happy, right? I'm happy in this plate. And so we have a thousand social media friends, but we don't really know anybody. We have a thousand social media friends and we post on stuff and they post on our stuff and they put hearts by our posts and other emojis and stuff. And so we're happy, right? And we know people and they know us, but we're lonely, huh? We're lonely. And the problem is with projecting a version of strength on yourself, a version of yourself that's perfectly oblivious, the ver- The problem with all of this is the more we project that we're fine and we're doing it, we actually drive ourselves to the thing that we don't want, isolation. Because so long as you're fine and you have no weaknesses, then what happens? You don't need anybody, you don't need anything, and so your relationships are held at an obstacle of superficiality, right? We're afraid to expose weakness out of fear of rejection, and yet it's weakness and vulnerability that actually bind us together in honest, genuine relationships that mean something, that means something. And so here's what we do in our pattern of sin. Instead of actually exposing weakness and identifying need, we just settle for this pattern of hiding, of posturing, and of self-protection. I would rather do those things than have something deep and meaningful with those around me. So here's what I've learned (laughs) in my 35 years of life, which I know is not long, but, but here's something I've learned. Most everyone is walking around as though they have life figured out and they're doing well. Most everyone. But the truth is most people aren't doing well and no one has life figured out. Right? Am I the only one? Yeah. Yeah. And so maybe you're sitting here going, wait a second, I thought we were talking about marriage this morning. I thought this was a marriage sermon. It is. I'm talking about this fracture in this relational angst we feel, this fracture in the longings we feel. We want deep and meaningful relationships, but it's this angst and this fracture in relating to one another that we bring into marriage. 
And so what happens when you bring this busted kind of way of relating to one another into marriage, now all of a sudden there's ulterior motives, there's defining your own terms, there's any kind of way you wanna think about marriage, you can think about marriage because after all, it's about filling up what's lacking in the insecurities you feel, right? And so now we wanna to move to the second piece of our time and that's a, can we get a definition for marriage? Can someone just kind of plainly say, what, what is this? And so when we talk about marriage, here's what we have to know from the beginning. We're talking about something that God invented, right? So it's not just that like all kinds of people across all kinds of places, Christian or not, or other religions are getting married. Yes, that's true. Marriage is a common grace given to all people in all places. But marriage is something, though a common grace, is distinctly ordained, invented, and instituted by God, the God of the Bible, right? This is what Genesis 2 is all about. Pastor Tim Keller says it this way. When you get into marriage, you've gotten into something that God invented. It was invented by God. If you say, I'm going to run my marriage my way, you're in for a lot of trouble. When you enter into marriage, you enter into God's house, into his institution. It's built his way. To ignore his laws is something you do to your own peril. If you say, no, 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 marriage is going to come second or third in my life and my spouse just has to get used to that, watch out because marriage isn't built that way. So, so in, our, in our current cultural context, I think the best way to get to a definition of marriage is to see it against the backdrop of what our commonly held vision of marriage is today. So, so in almost every direction, you and I breathe this common air that says marriage is about the importance and the desires and the pursuits of the individual person. That's what the common air we all breathe suggests to us, that marriage, the union of two people coming together is about the ultimate desires and interests and pursuits of the individual and that reigns. If you want ultimate happiness, then you need to have your personal desires met and fulfilled. And so what ends up happening is when we take on marriage this way, when we see it this way, it's reduced to just one other form of consumerism, right? Marriage just becomes another way in which you consume goods. So it's like this. Marriage becomes primarily about romantic fulfillment. Marriage comes primarily about sexual fulfillment, about creating your own utopia and achieving your own personal dreams, it's about being on a quest for the intense feeling of love. I just wanna find this intense euphoria of love out there that brings me a sense of completion and put togetherness. The popular view of marriage along with everything else is about freedom. Freedom doesn't come in boundaries. Freedom doesn't come in limits. Freedom comes with keeping your options open. Freedom comes with having limitless possibilities before you. Freedom to get out of marriage what you want out of marriage. And so here's the deal. <laughs> None of us would ever say that this is our vision of marriage. Like I, I have marriage counseling moments with, with guys all the time, couples, and uh, no one ever comes to those moments and goes, you know what? All of this is about me. No one says that. Like, there's never been a counseling session where someone says that. And yet that's exactly what all the tension's about is coming into the room because you've been under the preconceived idea that all of this is about you and the problem is not with you, it's with the person sitting next to you, right? 
This vision of marriage is why so many are remaining unmarried in our culture because they've given up on marriage altogether. No one can possibly fulfill me like this, so I'll just sort of remain platonic, right? Or marriage is impossible because no one can meet my self-absorbed expectations. This is exactly why over time, when you take on this vision of marriage, this is exactly why over time you hear, well, I just fell out of love. I just fell out of love. Well, of course you just fall out of love because the second that romantic fulfillment and sexual fulfillment and your wildest dreams aren't coming true, this person can't do anything for you anymore. It just, I'm just not feeling it anymore. Despite the fact that that person has dignity and worth also, really what's happening is you're supreme, right? Of course you fell out. It wasn't love anyways. It was the own fantasy of your own fulfillment. I fell out of fulfillment. Or, or the other thing that you commonly hear is we're just incompatible. Uh, of course you're incompatible. Of course you are. I don't know a single marriage, a couple that's compatible. You are two dirty sinners who see yourselves as supreme and history tells you when two supreme rulers get in a common place, what happens? War. <laughs> of course you're incompatible. The issue isn't compatibility. The issue is who are you and who are they and what is this that we're doing? Not what you're bringing, not what you're able to do for me, but who are you? Identity. That's the issue we're trying to drive at. And so no wonder in our culture around this topic, we get so hurt, we're cynical, we're insecure, we're anxious, we're afraid. If this is the vision we're supposed to buy of marriage, then I wouldn't get married either because it would just be easier to swipe right. I don't have to deal with real stuff. I don't have to deal with you letting me down. I'll just sort of get from you what I want from you and then I'll move on and I'll swipe right again tomorrow, right? And if you don't know what swipe right means, you're better off. <laughs> so then against the backdrop of marriage as consumerism, against this backdrop, it's the common air that we breathe, can we finally get a biblical definition of marriage? Like what, what is the Bible driving at? And it's not marriage as consumerism, it's marriage as covenant. It's marriage as covenant. Look back at verse 24. It says this, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. There's two key words here that we need to see in order to understand what's going on here with the issue and the idea and the reality of covenant. The first word is leave. The first word is leave. So marriage is a letting go of a former way of life. It's a letting go of a former security, a former version of fulfillment. It's a letting go, it's a leaving. And then it's also a holding fast. A old, old school way of saying this, if you're familiar with church, is leave and cleave, right? I think it's the King James of ways. Leave your father, mother, and cleave or hold fast to your wife. So biblical marriage as covenant, listen, has everything to do with letting go of self-security and self-fulfillment and a former way of life. Here's a definition if you're taking notes. Covenant is a willingly limiting of yourself and your options 
that's big, it's willingly limiting yourself and your options in order to make a conscious decision to be wholly directed to another for the exclusive good of the union. I'm gonna limit myself, I'm gonna limit my body, I'm gonna limit my sexuality, I'm gonna limit my relationships, I'm gonna limit, I'm gonna bring myself into a conscious limiting in order to make a decision toward another person for the common good of the union. This is biblical marriage. So, so to put it in layman's terms, right? Just to drop it in street language. Covenant is all about saying, I'm not going anywhere. My keys are on the table. You have access to my keys. Come hell or come high water, I'm anchored. That's covenant marriage. My keys are on the table. Think about this. I was thinking about this this week. Even in the vows that we say, I think sometimes we pass over the things we say in a marriage ceremony because it's like the warm sentiment of the moment and everyone's there just kind of taking pictures and looking how pretty everyone looks, right? But the things we say are crazy. Now catch this with me. In our traditional vows, in sickness and in health, richer or poorer, for better or for worse. Hey, in our traditional vows, we literally go forward to say, this might go bad. <laughs> like really bad. And just to put lipstick on the pig, I'm gonna wear a tuxedo. <laughs> but maybe for worse. That's, a, that's covenant. Hey, I'm in this. If we got a lot of money, if we don't. If you grow terminally ill or you're like healthy as can be. If all of our wildest dreams come true or if all of them get dashed. The next line, until death do we part. That is freakish and that is both at the same time compelling in our cultural moment, isn't it? Like that is so weird. Nothing in our culture suggests that those vows have to be actual. They're just sort of warm sentiment you stay. It's freakish, but isn't it also pretty compelling? Isn't it also pretty compelling? I'll say more about that in a second. But we literally say this in our vows. And the reason this, this is such a big deal, the reason that covenant is such a big deal is not because it's more idealistic. It's not because it's more romantic sounding. It's not because of any other warm sentiment. The reason that covenant is a big deal is because it's rooted in God himself. Covenant is all about God. There is no marriage. There's no such thing as marriage apart from covenant. Whatever else you look at marriage as, if it's not covenant, it's just so-called marriage. It's not actually marriage. Marriage is about covenant. Covenant is about God. It's who God is, a promise-keeping, a promise-making God. Covenant and promise without reservation. Promise with no strings attached. Promise for better or worse is central to the very character of God himself. This is why you're here today because this is what you believe about God. And so it's not covenant marriage 
that teaches us about God. Marriage doesn't teach us about God. It's the other way around. God, in his very character, in his very person, defines covenant marriage and promise for us. He helps us understand what life is, right? What marriage is. So to say it another way, marriage has everything to do with God because covenant promise has always been in his heart. This is what Jesus is about. So just listen to the way Jesus fulfills marriage. God sent his son to win over his people through giving himself sacrificially for our sin and our spiritual rampant adultery. He now takes us as his own. He gives us a new name. He promises to never leave us, never forsake us, no matter what, even to the point that he shares everything that belongs to him with us holding nothing back. That's Jesus. This is why Paul in Ephesians 5, maybe the most famous chapter on marriage says this. In the same way, husbands, you should love your wives as Christ loved the church. Love your wives as your own body. For he who loves his wife loves himself. No one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. We're united to him. And then he quotes Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 32 is huge. This is a profound mystery. He's talking about husbands and wives, right? Yes, but I'm saying that this refers to Christ and the church. Union, covenant can only be understood first in God, and then marriage is an institution whereby any who enter into it display what he's like to the world. That's the definition. That's the bottom line. That's the anchoring. Marriage is precious and beautiful because at its core, it has everything to do with what's bound up in the gospel. Marriage is about the greatest love ever displayed. That's what marriage is. A love that went well beyond feelings. If you define love as no thicker than feelings, you will be sorely disappointed and massively confused. The greatest love in the world went well beyond feelings to the point of sacrifice, no matter the cost, even death on a cross, and it didn't feel good. A love that drove the son of God, listen to the way Jesus fulfills marriage. He left his father's side in order to hold fast to us, the church, his bride, in order to give us a seat at his father's table without spot, without blemish, without guilt, without shame. He brings us into his family. And if marriage were at any point, if marriage were at any point fundamentally about personal fulfillment, if that's anything of what marriage has to do with fundamentally, then Jesus would have divorced every one of us a long time ago. He is massively unfulfilled in your response to him. <laughs> right? You kind of have to laugh to keep from crying at that point, you know? It's not personal fulfillment. And so here's the point. Marriage is about holiness over happiness. If you miss that, you've missed so much of the root and beauty of all of this. 
It's about holiness, becoming close to God and like God and conforming to his image over happiness. It's about joining together to display the heart of God over fulfilling your wildest dreams. If you're newlywed in the, in the room, you know, you're like, no, not us. We're never going to grow cold. We're like going to stay passionate forever. You're not. You're not. And just so you know, older and wiser and longer married people than you might just say, some of my dreams have had to let go because of the sanctity of my marriage. And that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Because here's the point. You're like, that sounds scary. Sounds really scary. That sounds like, why would I want to get married? Because it's only in the context of this kind of covenant that you can actually be honest. If it's constantly about consumerism and what the other person's experiencing to you and the fact that they might bail if they experience something that they don't want to experience, if that's the case, you keep things hidden, you keep things covered, you can't really be you, you can't really be known, you can't really know because they might just take their keys and run. But in covenant, you throw the keys on the table, here's who I am, and here's who I am, and I'm not going anywhere. Sounds a lot like Jesus. Sounds a lot like what he said to the church. Here's who I am, and back to him we say, and here's who we are, and then he says, and I'm not going anywhere. so covenant is under the banner of union that Jesus has with his church. And again, it's simultaneously freakish to this world and at the same time compelling. If you're married here today, one of the greatest evangelistic witnesses you will have to this watching world, one of the greatest evidences of God's grace to your neighborhood will be faithfulness in your marriage. That is really weird in our cultural moment. And people will ask why, people will ask how, and you'll be able to tell them something glorious and profound about the heart of God. Because you're ugly and so am I, but he doesn't go anywhere. And so I'm staying with her and I'm staying with him, right? So I wanna wrap up with some really practical applications today because maybe you're going, this doesn't help me at all in my marriage, right? couple of things I would say is, number one, if, if there's something, and I know there's a lot of things that we haven't touched in your specific situation today, um, this is why I'm so glad we're a church and not a show. We're not a show. This is not a place you come to attend, hear something, and leave. We're a church, which means we're a family, which means you come and we gather under a common word of our king together, and then we rally one another and go, help me make it work. It's the honor of the elders and leaders of this church to fight for healthy marriages. Tap us in, please. On the other side, if there's someone here, and the temptation in a sermon like this is always to like elbow your spouse the whole time. Listen to that, listen to that. You're a really bad Holy Spirit. <laughs> really bad. And you're not compelling. <laughs> If I elbow my wife or she elbows me, it makes me want to do the opposite just for the sake of doing the opposite, right? Know that about yourself. The things about your spouse that you're like, God, change that. Maybe God put that there to change you. Present your request to God. 
Be patient with your spouse. God is more interested in your spouse sanctification than you will ever be, but he's also way more committed to your sanctification than you'll ever be. God, change us, change us, right? The third thing I'd wanna say is if you're here today and, and you're caught up in a, a marriage where there's abuse and a lack of safety, the foundation of covenant does not suggest stay in that place. You have a voice in this church. We will do everything we can and drop everything to help you, to get you safe, to get you healthy. Covenant is not about putting yourself in harm's way. You have to hear that. It's the ideal, but we also live in reality. And we know that there's sometimes we have to beg God for help and get to safety, right? One other thing I would say is, um, just as a takeaway and a homework assignment, my wife and I are gonna be doing this. Um, Very often in our marriages, we are far greater experts in our spouse's weaknesses than we are their strengths. Like a profound expert in their weaknesses. I got a list, right? What if we reverse that for a second? What if you became an expert in their strengths? Here's the homework assignment. Take some time, process that, write them out, and then get together and share them. I can't think of a time in any marriage or in my marriage where that's happened and there was a fight afterward. You're strong at this. Only that, only that, (laughs) right? No. And if you only have one thing, you're doing it wrong, right? Multiple strengths. But be an expert in their strengths. And then the last thing I would say is um, take some time today through communion or, or this week and, and just gauge where am I and then maybe where are we on the scale of seeing marriage as consumerism, what I get out of it primarily about me as opposed to covenant. And just talk about that. Where, where is this primarily about your fulfillment or on the other side, primarily about the fulfillment of God's purposes and being faithful to one another, right? Here's what I know in, in my marriage. Even when, I've been at our, even when we've been at our healthiest, my wife and I in these 12 years, even when we've been at our healthiest and covenant seems to be growing, there is consistently always sprinklings and spatterings of consumerism. You're never out of the woods here. That's why the conversation is really important to keep having, right? 